Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this wonderful day when we're able to be together and worship you and we're able to fellowship with each other, share a meal with each other. And Father, I thank you for the generosity of your people here as they have reached down deep, they have bought food, they've brought it to this place this morning so that other people may be fed. And Father, we pray that they will be fed not only physically, but they will be fed spiritually as they see that God's people really do love them. God's people really do care about them. And because of this, we pray, Father, that people who don't know you will come to know you and help us to be people who will welcome those people in and show them through our lives what it looks like to be children of the most high and holy God. And Father, we pray that you'll bless the rest of the time that we have together. Thank you for loving us and thank you for sending your son to us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we've been moving through God's story that we find in the Bible. And last week we came to the climax of God's story. We came to the climatic point in the story of our God who welcomes back our God who pardons, our God who liberates, the climatic point in the story of our God who is faithful to his creation and who is faithful to his promises. And as we were looking at the climax of God's story, we saw that it it began when the dark world was suddenly infused with a bright light from the miraculous conception and birth of the Christ child. And we saw that the tension in that story gained steam as John the baptizer broke 400 years of prophetic silence when he came and he announced that the kingdom of heaven was near. It's at hand. And the intensity of the story heightened as sign after sign pointed to Jesus as the answer to several questions, questions that had been lingering for centuries. Questions like, where is Messiah And the signs pointed to the fact that Jesus is Messiah. Where is the anointed one? Jesus is the anointed one. Where is God's true light that's going to bring creation back to its original purpose? And the signs pointed to the fact that Jesus is that true light. But then God's story took a surprising and very dark turn. And we saw that the Jewish leaders who were acting out of fear and acting out of self-interest tried to snuff out God's true light. They orchestrated a plan that led to Jesus going through a very dark period. He went through the darkness of betrayal, the darkness of abandonment, the darkness of torture, and the darkness of execution, death on the cross. And we saw that as Jesus breathed his very last breath, It looked like in God's story that the darkness had once again prevailed. It looked like that God's story would continue on without a climax because Jesus' light had been extinguished on the cross. And so we saw as Jesus was taken from the cross and as he was placed in a tomb, that God's creation, the creation that was desperately in need of reclamation and redemption, creation held its breath, waiting to see if this was the end of God's story. And the end of Jesus' story. But praise God, it wasn't the end of the story. Instead, it was the climax of God's story. And that climax came with a lot of light. We saw in a scene that was full of light, the two Marys went to Jesus' tomb. And there was a violent earthquake. And an angel from heaven, whose appearance was like lightning, 
whose clothes were white as snow. That angel rolled back the stone and he said to the two women, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus, Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Then the angel said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead. See, Jesus was raised from death. And that's why we're here this morning. He was raised from death, and God's story reached its climax with a decisive victory, with a resurrection victory. You see, the empty tomb left no doubt that God's love was victorious. With Jesus' resurrection, God's love for us scored an overwhelming victory. The resurrection showed us that God's love overwhelms death. It showed us that God's love overwhelms evil. It shows us that God's love overwhelms darkness. And so with the climax of Jesus' resurrection, creation was once more able to breathe. It was able to breathe because all barriers had been removed. All penalties had been suffered. All ransoms had been paid. They'd been paid by Jesus, who's God's true light. And because God's story is our story, the climax of the empty tomb is also the climax of our redemption story. Because we are people redeemed by God. We are people rescued by God. And it's not because we have conquered darkness, but it's because Jesus' light proved to be brighter than the darkness in the world around us. Jesus' light proved to be brighter than even death itself. And Jesus' light certainly proved to be brighter than even the darkness that's within us. So here we are this morning. We're still talking about God's story. We're still living in God's story. It still continues on because while Jesus' resurrection was the climax of God's story, it wasn't the end of the story. God's story continues on after the resurrection, and our stories continue on as well. And so as we continue to explore God's story, we'll see that Jesus' resurrection decisively answered a couple of other questions. And those questions also had been lingering for centuries. One of those questions is, will God once more come to the rescue of his people? And the resurrection decisively answered that Jesus' resurrection leaves no doubt that the answer is yes. God is still in the rescue business. Another question that lingers is, where is Messiah? Where is the Redeemer of God's people? The empty tomb, Jesus' resurrection decisively answers that question. Messiah, Jesus' Messiah, is resurrected from the dead. And he's now seated on his throne in heaven and his light is reigning over all creation. The empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus answers those questions. But in our story, as the two Marys hurried away from the empty tomb to spread that resurrection news, there were still questions that remained. Not all questions had been answered. So today, as we turn the page into the next chapter of God's story, we turn the page with resurrection questions on our minds. We have questions like this. If Jesus' resurrection is the decisive turning point in God's story, 
in which direction is this story going to turn? Where is this story leading? Where is this story going? What's going to happen next in God's story? We also have to wonder, now that the resurrection has occurred, what's going to be different? What will have changed? Or will the next chapter of God's story simply be the same old story, just with different characters in it? So as we move ahead in this story, we move ahead wondering, what's the resurrection going to mean to those that are living after the resurrection? And we wonder, for those people... What are they going to do when faced with the reality of the empty tomb? And in this next chapter of God's story, it isn't the climax of God's story, but it's a chapter that's full of surprises. It's a chapter that's full of miracles. It's a chapter that's full of wonder. And it's full of surprises and it's full of wonder because of what happens. Because of what happens to the men who were Jesus' closest friends and followers. What happens to the apostles? See, in this next chapter of the story, we're going to see men who were once overwhelmed by darkness become overwhelming witnesses to Jesus' true light. And we'll see those same men become overpowering lights in the darkness of their world. And we'll also see that the dramatic conversion of the apostles, the dramatic conversion of the apostles, they were converted from fear to courage. They were converted from weakness to strength. They were converted from doubt to faith. And we'll see that their conversion is the most powerful testimony that we could possibly have to the reality and power of Jesus' resurrection. And we'll see that their conversion is the most powerful story that we have of the reality and power of the Holy Spirit. It's the apostles' startling transformation, the startling conversion that can only be explained by the risen Savior and only explained by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's spend a few minutes looking at their conversion story. So as instructed by Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, the apostles were all together in Jerusalem. He told them to stay together. He told them to wait, to wait to be baptized with the promised Holy Spirit. And they needed to be baptized by the promised Holy Spirit so they could become Jesus' witnesses Witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to every corner of the world. So that's where they were. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit so that they could fulfill their role as God's new light to the nations. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Skipping down to verse 12. The people were amazed and perplexed, and they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. 
And Peter says this. He says, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. We skip ahead to verse 22. This is Peter still talking. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This chapter of God's story opens with lots of drama. We have the Holy Spirit arriving with the sound of a violent wind. We have tongues of fire resting on the apostles. We see each member of the gathered crowd hearing the apostles speak in their very own language. There's a lot of drama going on. And if that wasn't enough drama, Peter, the very same Peter who not long ago was lurking in the darkness of Caiaphas' courtyard, the very same Peter who was vehemently denying that he knew Jesus at all, that he had any kind of relationship with Jesus. Peter, who if the story had ended there, would have forever been known as Peter the denier. That Peter. We see Peter boldly stand up before the crowd, and we see him boldly proclaim that Jesus, Jesus the man that they helped crucify, boldly proclaim Jesus as the resurrected Messiah sent from God. Peter the denier has become Peter the proclaimer. I have to ask the question, why the change? Why the difference in Peter? Well, there were two things that happened to convert Peter from a Jesus denier to a bold Jesus proclaimer. Jesus' resurrection happened. And the Holy Spirit happened. You see, the reality and the power of Jesus' resurrection changed Peter, and it changed him forever. And the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit changed Peter, and it changed him forever. Peter was converted. He was changed into something new. Peter, the denier, is now a powerful light to the nations, a powerful light for his resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And then let's look at what happened because Peter was converted into this powerful light. In verse 36, Peter's wrapping up his sermon, and he says this. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord God will call. Then in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their numbers that very day. Peter got up in front of the crowd and boldly proclaimed Jesus and his resurrection. 
Peter shared Jesus' light. And the purpose of Peter sharing the light wasn't just to highlight the darkness in those people's lives. Not just to point out the guilt that they had because Jesus had been crucified with their help. No, that wasn't really his purpose. His purpose was to shine a light on Jesus. And his purpose was to shine a light on Jesus' resurrection. And he did that to show that conversion was possible for everyone. Conversion was possible for everyone. See, Jesus' resurrection provided the people in that crowd an opportunity to also be converted, to also change. They could go from being known as Jesus' crucifiers and instead be known as children of Jesus, forgiven children of Jesus, children of the Messiah, filled with the Holy Spirit, who could also be living as God's new lights to the nations. So 3,000 people, that's quite a sermon, isn't it? 3,000 people, people who had actively and passively participated in Jesus' death. They chose to go down in the water, and they chose to participate in his resurrection. And they chose to leave the darkness behind and live in Jesus' light. And in this chapter of the story, amazing things just kept happening. And they kept happening because these people had been changed. These people were different. These people had been converted. And they began living resurrection lives. So after Peter's sermon and after all those baptisms, something really strange happened. Something really amazing happened. Something wonderful happened in Jerusalem. Paradise broke out. A taste of the garden broke out. A taste of life the way God always intended for it to be. That came to Jerusalem. And it shouldn't surprise us that this taste of garden living in Jerusalem was built on the kind of relationships that God always intended for his people to have. Let's read about that. Acts 2.42 Those who had been baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread... We put in another plug for potlucks. It's scriptural right here. Breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Paradise broke out in Jerusalem. A taste of the garden came to Jerusalem. And we see that paradise is community. Paradise is fellowship. Paradise is generosity. Paradise is sharing. Paradise is being together with other believers and even being glad about being with other believers. In short, this taste of paradise that came to Jerusalem was a taste of unity. Unity in fellowship. Unity in relationships. The kind of unity that God always intended for us to have. So the unity in this new community that formed in Jerusalem turned out to be irresistible Irresistible to the people who were living in darkness around them. See, they were attracted to this light. 
They were attracted to the light of this new community. And every day, more and more people were coming to the light. And more and more people were becoming light. Because they too were changed. They too were converted. So God continued to work through this community. And he continued to work through Peter the Proclaimer. He worked through him in powerful ways to spread God's light throughout Jerusalem. One little story that we read about in Acts took place just outside the temple. On the way to the temple, Peter and John encountered a beggar. And Peter said this, I'm reading from chapter 3 and verse 6. He said to the beggar, silver and gold I do not have. But what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There's echoes of Jesus in this story, isn't there? And just like with Jesus, the signs are there. The signs are there that light is breaking into the world. People are being changed. People are being healed. And there's no doubt that God is once again at work actively through his people. We need to notice that this healed man's response is exactly right. He walks, he jumps, he praises God. And as he does that, he's a shining example to other people. He shines God's light by showing other people what God has done for him, that God has healed him. And we need to notice that when healed people, when people who know that they've been healed by God, when they praise God for their healing, it brings wonder and it brings amazement to people who are around. It shines God's light into the dark world. But the story also takes a dark turn here. It probably shouldn't surprise us that the very same people who tried to snuff out Jesus' light also try to snuff out the light of this new community. Just like with Jesus, they're angry, and just like with Jesus, they're fearful. They don't like the fact that the apostles are proclaiming Jesus. They're proclaiming his resurrection. And so what they do is they seize John and Peter. They throw them in jail and leave them overnight. And the next morning they begin to grill them about what they've been doing and what they've been saying. What they've been saying about the resurrected Savior. We have to think this is a great test for Peter. Will he continue to be Peter the proclaimer or will he once more retreat back to the darkness of fear? Back to the darkness of denial. Chapter 4 and verse 7. They began to question John and Peter. By what power or what name did you do this? They're talking about the healing of the crippled beggar. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stand before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. 
Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and when they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Well, they're not sure what to do with John and Peter. And one of the reasons they're not sure what to do with them is because the proof of their healing miracle is standing right there in their midst. The healed beggar is there. It's awfully hard to argue with the reality of the miracle. So they decide to try to snuff out the light in a different way. Verse 18, they called Peter and John in, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. See, Peter and John are no longer ruled by fear. And because they're no longer ruled by fear, they're able to demonstrate that they have resurrection courage. And they have resurrection courage because they have seen and they have heard the risen Savior. And they have resurrection courage because they have seen and heard the Spirit at work in them. They've been converted. They've been converted into powerful lights in the midst of darkness. The rulers let Peter and John go. They don't let them go, though, until they threaten them with harm if they continue to proclaim Jesus and if they continue to proclaim his resurrection. So as Peter and John leave... We know that they have Jesus' dark death. The death was orchestrated by these very same threatening men. They have that death fresh in their mind. So Peter and John go back to their community. They go back to their community of light, and they pray. And part of that prayer we see in chapter 4, verse 29. They pray this to God. They say, Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Isn't that amazing? These men who have been threatened by the very same people who crucified Jesus. And what do they pray for? They don't pray for protection from those people. They pray for great boldness to continue to proclaim Jesus and to continue to proclaim his resurrection. And why are they able to do that? They're able to do that because the light of the resurrection overpowered the darkness of Jesus' death. So we see that the apostles' prayers answered. They do continue to boldly proclaim and they do continue to heal. And the Jewish rulers become more desperate and more fearful and more angry. So they arrest the apostles again. They throw them in jail again. And this time during the night, an angel comes and opens up the jail, brings them out of the jail and instructs them. We read this in chapter 5 and verse 20. He instructs them to go and stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life that they're living. That's exactly what they do. And the next day, the embarrassed Jewish rulers discover that their prisoners are missing. And not only are they missing, they're in the temple courts teaching about Jesus. So they bring the apostles before the high priest, and this exchange occurs. Verse 28, the high priest says this to the apostles. He said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. 
Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted to put them to death. See, they found that their threats no longer would work. And their threats wouldn't work because the apostles had been converted from darkness to Jesus' lights. And because they had been converted to Jesus' light, they continued to act with great boldness, with great courage, instead of seeking self-preservation. They acted this way because the resurrection is real. And because the resurrection is real, their faith is real. And because their faith is real, they become overpowering lights in the darkness. So the Sanhedrin have to decide what they're going to do. They send the apostles out of the room. They're once more going to debate their fate. And once more I find myself holding my breath. Because it seems almost certain that the apostles are about to suffer Jesus' fate. They're about to be killed. But there's one voice, one voice that speaks out in the darkness. Gamaliel, he's a teacher of the law. He's well-known. He's influential. Verse 38, he says this to the rest of the Sanhedrin. He says, I advise you to leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in. They had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. And day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And I stand here in front of you some 2,000 years later as testimony to the truth and the wisdom of Gamaliel's words. And you are here this morning, some 2,000 years later, testifying to the truth and the wisdom of Gamaliel's words. You see, God's witnesses to the resurrection were not stopped, and God's witnesses to the resurrection will not be stopped. The witnesses weren't stopped, and they will not be stopped, because our God, who raised Jesus from the dead, will not be defeated. So in this chapter of God's story, we see that God is once more setting a very powerful light before the nations. And that new light is his church. It's his church. A church that's called to be a powerful light. A church that's called to be a city on a hill. A church that's called to shine God's light into the dark world so that all will come to know forgiveness so that all will come to know conversion through the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I think that we need to understand something important from this story. We understand that the light, that the church only has power in the darkness is if we follow the bold example of this community of believers in Jerusalem. If we boldly follow their example by boldly proclaiming the gospel, but also boldly living resurrection lives. That's what makes our light powerful. That we both boldly proclaim the gospel, but we also boldly proclaim it with our lives, the way we live. We need to continually remind ourselves that the gospel that we do proclaim is all about Jesus. That's the true gospel. That's the gospel, as Paul says, of first importance. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's not about us. In fact, the gospel is not even about the church. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the truth on which we must boldly take our stand. We must stand on those three truths. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus lives again. That's the gospel that we need to proclaim to the dark world around us. But we also need to understand that that gospel loses its power if we, we who are proclaiming that gospel, don't live resurrected lives. If we don't live lives that reflect the fact that we believe those three things, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus lives again. See, if we don't live like who we are, if we don't live like people who were dead and who are now alive, then the power of the gospel loses its power. We were dead and now we were alive because Jesus lives. We were enslaved and now we are free because Jesus set us free. We were imprisoned and now we are liberated because Jesus broke our chains. That's the kind of people that others need to see. People who live resurrected lives. People who live liberated lives, free lives, lives as living people because of what Jesus has done for us. So let us, as a church, be bold proclaimers of the resurrection gospel. Jesus lived. Jesus died and Jesus lives again. Let's be bold proclaimers of that gospel. Let's do it through our words, certainly, but let's also do it through our lives. And if we live those lives and we proclaim that gospel with our lips, we will be a light to the nations. We will be that city on a hill. So I want to end our time this morning with an invitation. It's an invitation to imagine something with me. To think about what things could be, what things should be. Imagine with me for a minute what might happen in this city, what might happen in Albuquerque, if we become the bold witnesses that God has called us to be. You see, there is tremendous, there is overwhelming power in resurrected people, in people who Jesus has brought to life. There is tremendous, overwhelming power in resurrected people proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So imagine just a few things with me as we end. What if paradise broke out and the garden came to Albuquerque? What if those were the kind of relationships that we had? 
What if our fellowship reflected the fellowship of those Christians in Acts chapter 2? Imagine this with me. What if all of us, which is all of us, what if all of us who have been healed by Jesus just can't stop praising God for our healing? What if that was on our lips at all times? Praise for our God who has healed us, who's taken us out of darkness and put us into his light. What would happen if all of us who have been healed by Jesus just can't stop praising God? And then imagine this with me. What if all of us here, what if all of us continually prayed for boldness, prayed for boldness to proclaim Jesus to the world instead of praying for protection from the world? What would happen if we continually prayed for boldness to proclaim Jesus to the world instead of praying for protection from the world? And finally, imagine this with me. Imagine if our actions and if our behaviors were always driven by our God-given boldness instead of driven by our concerns about self-preservation. Just imagine what would happen if our actions and behaviors were always driven by our God-given boldness instead of always being concerned about self-preservation. So may we be a community of unity in Albuquerque. A community of unity that never stops living and never stops proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the resurrected Christ. So let's end this morning, excuse me, let's end this afternoon by standing up. Go ahead and stand up. And let's boldly lift our voices. Give everybody time to stand up, stretch boldly lift our voices in unity. Lift our voices as one. I want you to sing as a specific kind of people. Let's sing like people who have been brought back to life. Let's sing like people who have been set free. Let's sing like people who know that our God has taken us out of darkness into the light. And let's boldly proclaim that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and he is the light of the world. Let's sing together. Sing.